Locate in your Bibles this morning the Old Testament prophecy of Zechariah. Zechariah and the first chapter. And in just a moment, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 6. Zechariah chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. text reads, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers, to whom the former prophets cried, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they didn't hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, As the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Let's pray. Father, we say that the Lord is king. We sing that the Lord is king. And yet so often in our thoughts, our words, and our deeds, we communicate something very different. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would be merciful to us. We ask that you would cleanse us of all sin and that you would cast away our transgressions and our iniquities into the depths of the sea, never to rise again. We pray that you would, in your mercy and grace, speak to us today through this message, drawing us closer to yourself, rooting out the sin in our lives, and strengthening us in our salvation walk with Christ. Help us. But Father, I pray that you would not only help us in us, in ourselves, but that you would help us for others so that we can go and proclaim the message of hope for the repentant sinner outside these four walls. There are many who are, indeed most, who are not gathered today to worship you. 
Do we want them to? I certainly hope so. Help us to be more intentional about reaching the lost with the good news of Jesus Christ. So, Father, I pray that you would convict us and challenge us by your law. And I pray that you would forgive us and liberate us by your gospel. In Jesus' name and for his sake, amen. In Psalm 13, an embattled man sings mournfully, lamenting a keen sense of isolation from God and his blessings, a helplessness that is something like that feeling that you you might have when walking through a dark tunnel, but this tunnel is very close indeed, and there is no light at the end of it, and there is increasingly limited oxygen, and you are increasingly aware of that limited oxygen, and there is the increasing sensation of slipping into unconsciousness. A small yawn becomes a bigger yawn, and a growing sense of sluggishness and lethargy, and you know if you stop and you take a nap, you won't wake up from that nap. The darkness is enveloping him. The closeness of his enemies and of, 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 of just the, the warfare that is without, but also that with, which is within the depths of his own soul is so suffocating that he cries out in pain to God, How long, O Lord? How long? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, Lord. Lord my God, light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. Perhaps such a psalm would have been sung by the Jews of Zechariah's time. Though they are now freed from around 70 years in exile and allowed to gradually return to their homeland, they found that resuming life and worship as God's people in and around Jerusalem was proving challenging. They had to rebuild their lives. Some of them were elderly at the end of their lives, and yet here they had to start all over again. But they had memories of the past which held them back from pursuing God's plan for their present and future. Many of those who returned to Jerusalem at that time were actually born in exile. They had never been to the land of Israel and Judah. This was a new country to them. Think about that. Though, though, though it is their land, though it is their city, they don't feel like it's theirs. They have 
understandably, attachment issues. They don't recognize this place. While they would have likely maintained some semblance of Jewish custom and diet whilst in exile, they still would have had the questions anyone has when they move to a different place. I I don't know this food. I don't know how to get food here. I don't know how to grow food in this soil. I don't I don't know how to, you know, where do I even begin getting the materials to to build my home or to rebuild the walls or to much less rebuild a temple? All of those questions that you might have if ever you've moved, especially if you've moved from one country to another, many of these who were born in exile would have been asking in some way. Likewise, the question might be asked, what was it exactly that they were supposed to rebuild? You see, they had not seen what they were rebuilding with their own eyes. Again, they were born in exile, so they had not seen the city. They had not seen its walls. They had not experienced the beauty and the grandeur of its temple. And yet here they are supposed to rebuild it. They can read about it. But imagine, you know, it's just a generation removed. But if you've not seen it, you can read all you want. You you know, it it takes someone very insightful and skilled to to take the written directions that we have elsewhere, the written uh, expressions of the old temple being built, and then to translate that to an image. It's very difficult to... uh, uh, when, I don't know that we have any artists among us, but uh, just try to read about Solomon rebuilding the temple and then, then trying to take that information and draw an accurate representation. Of course, there were some alive who were old who knew what it was like and could give some directions and perhaps they could dig up some old and tatty blueprint somewhere. But... For the most part, it was all unfamiliar. Resume life and worship? No, for these people, it was more like restart life and worship. Reset life and worship because this was completely different and completely new. The frightening uncertainties of their future were one thing, but the crippling anxieties of the present were another. They were distracted by misplaced priorities and their work was obstructed by their own selves. Political challenges, leadership crises and inhospitable neighbors. The local economy was decimated and basic infrastructure was crumbling. Even though they were no longer exiles in Babylon, they may have had those moments when they prayed With the psalmist, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? I don't know, but perhaps you feel that way this morning. And it's not just because of the onset of SAD. With the changing of the season, everyone probably feels a little down. But you have tangible things in your life, in your background, 
in your future that are causing you to ask that question, where are you, Lord? How long have you forgotten me? I'm not going to go through a a list of ways in which you may potentially feel burdened or feel defeated or feel distant from God and His people. You know those things. You know the, the doubts and the fears that you wrestle with. The emotional baggage that you carry. The wounds of trauma that are perhaps at best scabbed over and still seep from time to time. You know the situations you have not coped well with even in recent days. Those things you've not handled particularly well that sort of nag at your mind and conscience. You know the ways in which you have misplaced your own priorities, drifted spiritually, or given in to despair. You may in some area of your life right now be crying out, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? And someone else on the, the, the outside may be looking at that and they might be saying, Ah, you're being a bit dramatic. It's, it's not all that really. But only you know the tumult in your own soul questions that you have, the feelings that you carry. God answered the people of that time. And because His Word is living and active, He answers you today. And He does so through His prophet Zechariah. Zechariah's name is itself an answer to your questions. It is an answer to your fears. It means, does anyone know? No? God remembers. The Lord remembers. But God doesn't just say that He remembers, He shows that He remembers. God shows that he remembers with a plea. In the text before us, Zechariah, speaking the word of the Lord, begins and says, the Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me. Return to me. The implication is that they have left him. And indeed they had. And it's something that's stretched out over centuries. And whole books are written of how they drifted and how they fell away from the Lord. But 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 7 through 17. Read that later. 2 Kings 17, 7 through 17 is a very neat summary of the story of their rebellion against God. The Lord their God, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had told them, you shall have no other gods before me. And they went and did exactly the opposite. They feared other gods. They walked in the customs of the nations around them, whom 
the, the, the wicked nations, the child sacrificing nations, the, 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 the brutally oppressive and, and immoral nations that God had driven out before them so that they could inhabit this land. And they not only accepted their gods, but they adopted their behavior. They not only worshipped their idols, but they, they actively sought to fit in with their customs. It all started in secret. And that's often how sin and rebellion against God starts. When no one's watching or you think no one's watching. But God is. It's just bizarre that they would think that they could do anything secret from God. But they did. The people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. So much is packed into that sentence. But they moved from the secret places and the secret sins to building for themselves high places in all of their towns from watchtower to fortified city, pillars and idols on every high hill and under every green tree. They make offerings in the high places and the hills as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them, they did wicked things and provoked the Lord to anger and served idols. Even when God said, you shall not do this. And the Lord warned them by every prophet and every seer, turn from your evil ways. Keep my commandments and statutes. But they wouldn't listen. They were stubborn. They continued to reject the Lord their God. They despised His Word. They continued to follow what other people were thinking, saying, and doing instead of what God had told them to do. And it just got worse and worse and worse and less secret and more public. And it ends, verse 17 of that, that account, 2 Kings 17, 17, and they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings. And they used divination and omens and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. The language there of sold themselves is that of prostitution, if anyone was wondering. And sometimes people read the stories of God's justice, his judgment. They read the prophecies and they say, oh, that's a bit harsh. Oh, God just seems so angry. How would you respond if the spouse, the husband or the wife that you have loved, that you have given your life for, that you have, have, have loved abundantly, quite openly, so you could know it, took your faithfulness and your commitment for granted and went out with a bunch of cards and stickers, put them up in the phone box so that strangers could phone them up. How would you feel if that was your marriage? Would you be angry? Would you be betrayed? Would you be righteous in your anger? 
I think you would. And if you say anything different, I think you're a liar. Because that's infuriating. And God, who is perfectly good and perfectly righteous and perfectly holy, and there is no shred of anything wrong in God or about God. And he alone can be perfectly consistent in his judgments and totally non-hypocritical in his wrath. Is treated that way by his people. Are we any different? Is our history that different? I believe our accurate self-examination is obstructed by our historic illiteracy. We don't know our history. And many don't care to. But Zechariah builds his prophecy from the starting point of history. So I ask you, what is the history of this city? How was it built? And for what purposes? What is the history of our nation? And what are the ways in which it has and continues to rebel against God? What is the history of our country of origin? Our ethnic group? Our tribe? What is the history of our family? Our ancestors. What gods did they worship and serve? What atrocities did they commit? I'm sure if we go far back enough, we can probably find even some child sacrifice in there. The history even of our professedly Christian forebears. People who said they know Jesus. Who maybe just in the mercies of God as through fire will be with us in heaven. But they said some terrible things. And they did some wicked things. Even whilst out of their mouths they proclaimed the excellencies of Christ. If we knew these histories, we would know the history of sin. Because tragically, the history of humanity is inseparable from the history of sin. The scholar, linguist, and author J.R.R. Tolkien wrote in a letter to his son while reflecting on a sermon he had heard that Sunday, a small knowledge of history depresses one with a sense of the everlasting mass and weight of human iniquity. Old, old, dreary, endless, repetitive, unchanging, incurable wickedness. I feel that in the individual lives of all but a few, the balance is debit. And we do so little that is positive good, even if we negatively avoid what is actively evil. But God still says through his prophet to us today, return, return to me. He said it then and the word still speaks now to us 
Some people call it a command, and it is. But, you know, there are others who think uh, to call it a command, uh, a command is something harsh. Maybe for a moment they forget that law is actually something good that is meant to protect and to order. But um, they rather call it an invitation. And that's fine because it is. Because it calls for a response. God says return. So they have the opportunity to what? To return. They have the opportunity to choose how they will respond to what God has said about return. Well, they continue to rebel against God, their creator and savior, either by ignoring or completely rejecting his word. Or will they decide that indeed their only help in life and their only hope in eternity is the God whose arms are open wide, calling them home? Return to me. But you know, an invitation can seem too soft, can't it? Too passive a word for such a powerful gesture. This is not an RSVP to a party or to a wedding. And you have a casual option of ticking yes, no, or I'll get back with you later. This is urgent. This is necessary. This is a matter of life, death, and eternity. Return to me. It's a building on fire. And God is saying, jump, I'll catch you. And you can either burn or you can jump and know the salvation of the Lord. A plea reflects the urgency and force of God's command. I think it brings together the strengths of these words, command and invitation. God is, is through His prophet pleading, return to me. Urgency and force of God's command and at the same time, the necessity of human response to His invitation. That's how God shows He remembers. But God also shows He remembers not only with a plea, but with a promise. Return to me and I will return to you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you did on the way or when you got there. Whatever you thought, whatever you said, whatever you did, regardless of the depths to which you sank or the lofty heights that you proudly pretended to yourself that you had climbed. However wrong you were, however filthy you became, however sinful you are, return to me, he says, and I will return to you. Return from your idolatry. Your false beliefs about God, your false beliefs about yourself, your self-righteousness, your self-loathing that indicates that you believe God is not strong enough to save you. Your consumerism and materialism and entitlement that pretends that the Blessings and bounty of this world that are given according to God's grace 
you deserve those. Your elevation of other people more highly than is appropriate. Even people who, whose life revolves around pointing you to Jesus, but you've lifted them up on a pedestal as though they are something. Your wholesale and indiscriminate embrace of ideas, philosophies, and worldviews contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your blending of Christian faith and practice with the dark beliefs, practices, and motivations of false religions from your ancestral past or cultural present. The nonsense that people say the things that are not born of Christ, not born of God, but which are of some sort of weird idol worship. And yet they somehow have married that up with Jesus as, they, as though they can do both. Return and He will return to you. Return from your immorality. Your abuse of God's gifts of sex and sexuality. Your entertainment of feelings and practice of behaviors that are contrary to God's will and His design for what pleases Him as well as what is for the protection and flourishing of society. The people you've been with and the things you've done with them. The content you've viewed the fantasies you've dwelt on, the provocations you've engaged in, the texts you've exchanged. And we could go on. All things outside of the safe and God-honoring parameters of marriage between a man and a woman return to me and I will return to you. Return from your injustice your lies and your deceit, your financial irresponsibility, stinginess, or fraud, your dishonest self-serving schemes, your false witness, defending the indefensible or accusing the vulnerable and innocent. Poor judgment on the one hand, prejudgment, that is prejudice on the other. Your slaughter of the children, the infants, even the unborn. Your neglect of vulnerable and needy, perhaps even impoverished members of society. The way you have treated strangers, foreigners, economic migrants, asylum seekers, and refugees. The way you have given lip service to love of neighbor. But that is not evident in what you say or do. Return and he will return to you. Now, maybe you thought I was just, you know, I, I was just reading you into this text or reading you out of this text. But really, I was apart from a few references to Christianity or texting or some sort of modern technology or something, 
Um, I was actually rehearsing the sins of Israel and Judah as they are outlined again and again in the historic books of the Old Testament and in the prophetic accounts. It shows how little people have changed. But my friends, God hasn't changed either. Return to me and I will return to you. God says it. Let God be true and every man a liar. I will return to you. It is a promise. He's not just giving you a proverb, which might generally be true with certain exceptions. He's not giving you a basic principle. Like most of the time, this is what I do. He is giving you a promise. If you come to him now, he will come to you. If you return to Him, He will return to you. It doesn't matter how far away you are from Him this morning. He will come to you. But God, you know, you, 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 sometimes we're, we're so messed up in our hearts and our minds. His plea isn't enough. He says return and we're not so sure. He says, um, you know, look, I'm promising it to you and we're doubtful, we're hesitant. And it's almost like we believe God is cruel, like God is just teasing us. I remember, and this is so different from the situation we face with God, and yet it comes to mind when um, my family would go away, we would stay always in a place, most of the time in the U.S., places are that way anyway, that has a swimming pool. And my, my dad knew we wanted to spend time in the swimming pool. The idea appealed to us. The practice didn't always. You know, we'd be excited in our floaties and whatnot and get down to the pool and then, oh, not so sure. But he would jump in and he would hold out his arms and he'd say, jump, I'll catch you. I'll catch you. And we wouldn't jump. The thing is, uh, my dad has a sense of humor. Um, He has a mischievous sense of humor. And there was a little part of me that couldn't discern between his sense of humor and, and, and his promise to catch me. Part of me thought that he would sort of like, whoops, <laughs> and um, leave me sort of flailing about. I had no basis for that, no experience of that, but for some reason it just came to my mind. And the less I believed him, it's like when someone doesn't believe you and you're kind of desperate for them to believe you, you start laughing and there's a little, you know, my dad not only laughs, but he laughs in his eyes. He has a twinkle in his eyes that just, I'm, like, I'm not so sure if he's, he's serious And um, every time I would eventually jump and every time he would catch me. And then eventually I realized it's actually more fun to jump into the water and create a splash anyway. So, I mean, that was that that was the next step. That was the next lesson. That'd be okay. And God, he, he promises to us. Return to me and I'll return to you. And there's something about it that's like, 
I'm going to return to God and he's going to leave me hanging. He's just going to just leave me flailing about on my own. He's not going to give me the power of the Holy Spirit. He's not going to walk with me or talk with me. It's going to be the most painful or at best awkward experience. And I just don't. Maybe we've had rejection in our lives. Maybe we've had uh, you know, uh, this, this problem that we've grown accustomed to of people breaking their promises. And so we, we have trust issues. But this is not anyone we're talking about. God shows He remembers by His power. And to see His power, He points us to Himself again and again in this text. How do we know He will return to us if we return to Him? And the answer again is is in the text. He refers to Himself repeatedly as the Lord of hosts. I said it last week, but maybe you've forgotten. And I'll probably be saying this periodically because Zechariah says it periodically. If anyone says, oh, your sermons are repetitive, it's because the Scriptures are repetitive. Because God wants you to get this. That He is the Lord of hosts. And no, as I said last week, that is not, that He's really good at hospitality. I'm still annoyed by this study Bible that I read that in. Fortunately, not with reference to Zechariah, but elsewhere. Oh, here the Lord is the Lord of hosts. He's laying a table for us. That's not what it means. It means that, that God is armed and ready for battle and he's blowing a trumpet and there are armies behind him and you know what even the enemies are under his control and he's moving them where he will God is the God of armies the Lord of armies spiritual armies angelic armies so you're worried about spiritual warfare. You're worried about, oh, is this demonic? Is this satanic? You know, and sometimes things happen in your life and you're just, you know, is this spiritual warfare? Is this, is this demonic? And, and, and people get really, they get really like, like, you know, worried about that. And, and anxious and nervous about it. And I remember uh, uh, multiple times someone that was just like, they, they thought that they were seeing something. thing is, I hadn't seen it. They thought they felt a presence. I hadn't felt it, but they, they, they thought it was there. And I said, this, even if, it, even if it is nothing, it's something because you feel it. Even if it, it was just a, you have it in your head that there was something and you're worried about it, and it's filling you with fear, don't be afraid. If you're in Christ, you don't have any reason to be. Not to make light of demonic entities, but let that whatever it is flit about up there. It can't touch you because the Lord of armies is in you and around you. It has no hold over you. It has no power here. The Lord is the Lord of not only angelic entities. He's sovereign over demonic entities. 
They can't do anything against his will, ultimately. He's working out his plan and purpose in everything. Covenantal armies, the armies of Israel. This was so important for the people in, when they were uh, faced by so many enemies. In fact, the language of the Lord of hosts becomes particularly prominent in the light of the national and political entities that are coming up against them. There's the surrounding nations. We're so small. We're nothing against these empires. But I'm the Lord of hosts. I'm the Lord of armies. I'm the Lord of the armies of Israel. Do you think I'll, I'll leave you on your own? Here's the good news. He's not only Lord of covenantal armies, armies of Israel and Judah. He's the Lord of, he's the, Lord of the armies of Assyria. He's the Lord of the armies of Babylon. He's the Lord of the armies of Persia. And we know it because the Scriptures tell us such. That the Lord has taken them in His hand and is using them to discipline His people. And the Lord, who is the Lord of those armies who has given them authority and strength and power can just as quickly take it away and turn that same authority back on them. He did it with Assyria. The Babylonians conquered Assyria. He did it with Babylon. The Persians conquered Babylon. Do you think he's doing anything different today? When you feel like the pillars of the earth are shaking and everything's collapsing and just everyone's, and some of it is, Honestly, self-inflicted wounds of mass hysteria. But the world is falling apart. Do you think God is any different? He's the Lord of armies today. Spiritual bodies, covenantal bodies, political bodies. But it, it, we, we sang it in these songs earlier, and I want to really stress what that means. You know, he talked about creating this. One of the songs talked about creating the stars or something like that, and the heavens being made, and all of that. Well, the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians worshipped the stars, not the creator of the stars. The, 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 the stars were, well, they had written scriptures, the stars were. The source of those scriptures, in many cases, they looked at the stars and they told stories of the gods and the stars were personalized and the stars were deified and the stars had power and the stars looked down upon the earth and reigned over the earth in this sort of astrological cosmology. And so they believe that everything is ruled by the stars. Same as people in our own city today, many believe that their life is ordered by the movements of the stars and the planets and the whatnots. God is the one who made those stars. He is the Lord of, of all of the hosts. Hosts, armies of, of angels, of, of demons, of Israel and Judah and Syria and Babylon and Persia and the galactic armies of stars. The host of the heavens. And it's all his and he reigns over all of it. 
These things that their enemies worshipped, God made them. They're things. They're lights. They are the light bulbs of the earth screwed into the sky by God to light our darkness. And you've worshipped them. What nonsense. But they're beautiful. They're a lot better than our light bulbs, especially this one right here. It's been flickering. God made those and they stand for millennia. Unchanging. Moving about in some way, but not. they're always there. God having, the scripture says, charted their course as he charts the course of the world. Friends, do we really believe that he is the Lord of hosts? That God is in control over all things? That he reigns, that he reigned over their exile? That he reigns over whatever exile you feel yourself to be in? That he reigned over the difficulties they faced upon their return? That he reigns over the difficulties that you are facing? That's why they admit in their repentance, because they do repent at the end of this section, verse six, they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. God reigns even over and in our broken histories. I've been reading a book called Here Are Your Gods by a theologian named Christopher Wright. And he says it very well. The historical process is not something separate from the governance of God. Rather, it embodies, that is, the historical process embodies the outworking of the principles of God's governance. God is not trapped within the historical process, nor is God merely to be identified with it, as though he's sort of standing on the side in some way. But he remains sovereign over it. He is at work within it and he exercises his sovereignty through it. And at the heart of history is Jesus Christ. Who by our system of dating in general terms splits history in half. Before Christ after the year of our Lord. Jesus is the embodiment of the plea, the promise, and the power of God. Jesus calls you. He cleanses you. He is king over you. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. And so if you know Him as king, He has sent you out as His saved people on mission to proclaim His kingship to others. The message we proclaim is not the Lord has dealt with us according to our ways and deeds. It's actually gotten better since Zechariah preached. The message we proclaim is the Lord deals with us according to Christ's ways and deeds. Because on the cross, Jesus took our sins and He paid the price. And if you want to see what it looks like for God to deal with you according to your ways and deeds, you have only to think of Jesus on the cross. Bleeding His life out 
crying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not unlike the psalmist, eh? Will you forget me forever? Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Jesus went down into death itself. He did sleep the sleep of death. And even death itself wasn't strong enough to prevent the sovereign Lord God from lighting up his eyes. And he rose. And we who believe in him know his righteousness, know his power, his newness of life, his resurrection life. Christ's deeds or how He deals with us. Only by grace can we enter. Only by grace can we stand. Not by our human endeavor, but by the blood of the Lamb. Into His presence He calls us. He calls us to come. Into His presence He draws us. And now by His grace we come. Lord, if you mark our transgressions, who could stand? Thanks to your grace, we are cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the sacrifice, the substitute for us so that God doesn't have to deal with you and me according to what we have done, but he can deal with us according to what Jesus has done. He does not look at you in your sin. He looks at you in your Savior, Jesus Christ. And He's not forgotten you. Even David, who didn't know Jesus in the way that you and I know Him, he knew that. The psalm that we started with may ask, how long will you forget me forever? But by the end of that same psalm, just a few verses later, he's celebrating. And so should we, if we trust him. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord. Because he has dealt bountifully with me. Has he, dealt, has he dealt bountifully with you? Do you think he has the power to deal bountifully with you again? Return to him and he will return to you. Heavenly Father, thank you this morning for your plea, your promise, and your power. Thank you that in these things you show us that you remember that you've not forgotten. You see us, you know us, you will help us. Have mercy, O God, and heal our land. In Jesus' name, amen.